Let's pray, and then we'll look at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Father, we thank you for this time together. It is truly a joy to look into your word, Lord. We realize there's so many things going on in the world, and what we do here doesn't really make sense to them. But that's okay, Lord. You told us that the world would hate us because it hated you. And there would be difficulties there, Lord, and we realize that. But yet we have the answers for life. We have the gospel. We have what the world needs. Every life matters, and, and, and the world needs that. And we have the answer. And so, Lord, we, we proudly and boldly and humbly proclaim your word this morning, which will help us in this life and in the next, Lord. Lord, thank you for our missionaries around the world. We want to pause and just remember them, Lord. They're, many of them are in third world. Uh, things are so difficult there. They're difficult here, but not even comparably to what they're going through. And so we pray for our missionaries that um, are living in places that are full of destitute and difficulties and no medical care and so many problems. Lord, I pray you would just give them great opportunities that they would be able to proclaim the gospel and many, Lord, you would draw to yourself through this time. Lord, please meet their needs financially and physically, spiritually, Lord, as they do your work, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this gathering. Now we ask that your spirit would take the word of God and pierce our hearts and our minds, cause us to know you, to grow in our knowledge and our love for you, and that the things we say here not only would we agree with here, but we would live out the rest of the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Benedict Arnold was once a patriotic hero in America. Do you know that? He was valued by George Washington. He was admired by his fellow soldiers that he fought side by side with. There are many victories he fought in the Revolutionary War before he switched sides. He was honored in those. But his name is synonymous with what? A traitor, isn't it? You cannot say that. In fact, often it's used in a slang way to talk about someone who is a traitor. Well, it all began long before the physical things took place. It began in his heart like all sin does. Sin began, begins to want prestige. It wants what the world has, and so it pursues those things at all costs. Eventually, it led Benedict Arnold to attempt to sell off, get this, West Point. His goal was to sell off not only the grounds there in New York, but all of the military fortress and the men being trained there. He was asking for 10,000 pounds and to become a British officer. Well, Arnold had gone through a lot of problems. He was upset that he was not recognized. Other men in lower ranks were recognized and it began to weigh on him and he began to be angry that he did not get what he deserved. Then he lost one wife and began to marry into another family. This was a prestigious family in Philadelphia area, but they were loyalists to Britain. This woman swayed his heart even more, but she was also very wealthy and so he felt that he had to provide for her like her father did. And so they began to live this extraordinary life and and of wealth and prestige, and Arnold found himself in what? Debt. And so you could see the mounting things that began to happen. And so his treacherous plans began to be hatched. Money and prestige drove him to turn 
against his own people. He led an attack against his own state, home territory, Connecticut. And then he attempted to capture uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Then at the end of that, he portrayed a friend and switched sides. And in the end, Benedict Arnold fought against those he once stood with and tried to kill them. His life did not end well. He ended up moving back to London and he died in obscurity June 14th, 1801. And forever he is known as a traitor. It's quite a story, isn't it? But it's the story of mankind, isn't it? Man is wicked at his heart, isn't he? There is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible tells us. Jeremiah writes this in chapter 17, 9 and 10. You know these verses. The heart is more deceitful than all else. All else. Did you hear that? Nothing more deceitful than man's heart. He's born in depravity. He thinks deceitful. Left to himself, no matter what his moral capabilities or upbringing may be, in the end, his heart will win, and it is deceitful. The Bible goes on to say, who can understand it? We can't understand our hearts. Actually, it is the Bible, it is God's word that helps us understand how wicked our hearts are and the capability they have. The next verse goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. Uh Uh-oh. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Proverbs, King Solomon wrote this, chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in its end, it is the way of death. See, man thinks he has things figured out. He thinks he can get himself a life that he desires, but in the end, the Bible says, he perishes. And that death is not just loss of breath. It's eternal death. Romans, in so many places in the Pauline epistles, Describe the difference between flesh and spirit. Flesh is always linked with death. Go study the word flesh in the New Testament. Chase it down. So often you will find that flesh is equal to death. Live by your flesh, die. Live by the spirit, live. Peace. There's a difference. And the Bible is always separating those out. Live by your flesh and you will find the destruction that comes with it. Live according to the Spirit. That means you must have already bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at salvation, the Spirit of God comes into your life and he directs you to life and peace eternally. Well, men like Judas and Benedict Arnold, long before they betrayed their nation or the Lord Jesus Christ, flesh had a hold of them. And in the end, they did what their flesh wanted them to do. They were blind to the glory of Christ. They were blind to the glory and person of who the Lord Jesus was. And they could not see the control that a sovereign God had over all events. Well, in this morning's text, we will see the account of the last Passover. And in particular, two areas we're going to look at over four points, but in two areas. First, there's an extraordinary method that Jesus uses to direct his disciples to this upper room to this last Passover, and I'm going to talk about why it's called the last Passover in a moment. And then secondly, you will see that Jesus will make this announcement at this meal. He will announce that there is a betrayer among them, and each one of them will try to figure out if it is them. 
There is a betrayer. There is one who will betray Jesus so well embedded in this group, nobody knows he's there. And yet, he has walked and talked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's so much in this text to learn about our Savior and our own hearts. Look at point one with me. The Passover meal and our sovereign Lord. The Passover meal and our sovereign Lord. Look at verse 12, the beginning of it, at least with me. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Now, the Passover was selected as uh, Passover lamb would have been selected as Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem just in the early part of this week. Remember, we call it this triumphal entry. A lot of people call it Palm Sunday. That, that would have fell on the time when the nation was to select the lamb that was representative of the one who would shed its blood and the death angel would pass over. So they would select that lamb and Jesus happened to come in on that day. Isn't that a, just a coincidence? Now that was the plan of God it's now the 14th of Nisan. It is the day of the Passover lamb. It's the day lambs are to be slaughtered. They are to be sacrificed as, a, as an offering to God to remember what God had done for the nation of Israel. Mark doesn't record much of the instruction from, from the day of Thursday. Thursday was a massive day of teaching for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in a minute. But it moves to this scene. The text, the text picks out this long day of preparation that had to take place in order for Jesus to have this Passover with his disciples. The time of Jesus' death was closing in. Interesting, Matthew recording this same scene says this in Matthew 26, 18. And he, Jesus, said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, now listen to this. The teacher says, now this phrase is only in Matthew my time is near. See, Jesus has complete control. And it's a sobering thought, think about this, brothers and sisters, to know your time of death, to know the means of the death, and to know the purpose of your death. There's really no one that could say that. They may come across a person who's in the hospital, and I've been with these people where they know they're going to die, and those beautiful conversations about Christ take place. But they often don't know the means and they don't understand the purpose of it. They're just going to trust the Lord. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he knows how they're going to kill him. That's astounding to me. And, and he knows beyond that, think about this, he knows the weight of the sin that the Father will put upon him, judge him like he committed him. All that is standing before him and he says, my time is near. And he's not backing off. I think that's sobering when you think about this. And so his, here's his disciples. They, they still seem to be unaware of Christ's impending death, not because he has not told them of it, but, but they seem to be unaware of it. And they're looking forward to this great feast, which the Passover turned into a celebration by this time of Israel's history. Notice the end of verse 12. He said to his disciples, his disciples said, excuse me, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, think about this. This is early Thursday morning. The disciples knew how long the process was to get a table, to get, to get a Passover meal ready for this. Matthew records that they went and found Jesus, meaning he wasn't with them at the moment. So probably Thursday morning at daybreak, the Lord's doing what he probably always does. Where do you think he was? Probably praying. That's my thoughts. Probably praying somewhere off 
with the Lord as he was preparing for this last meal in these last few hours that he would have here on earth. Certainly Jesus had had the habit of celebrating the Passover. He was 33 years on life on earth. He had, he had seen that. He had observed that. But, but today's question was where? Where are we going to do this feast? Now again, this takes in a lot of preparation for this feast. It doesn't just drive up and you know, and order it at the drive-thru. This was a planned event. There were some instructions that the nation of Israel had to handle. And so there's this killing of this lamb that has to take place. Think about all the things that they gotta get done here. Lord, where are we doing this, you know? Uh, we've got till sunset to get this ready. And so they had to kill a lamb at the, temp- at the temple and, and they had to make a room ready for a proper feast. There's preparing and baking of unleavened bread or at least purchasing those things. There's, there's finding that choice wine that would go with that meal. There's retrieving water. Uh, we know he's gonna wash and feed it this as well. Um, there's bitter herbs and, and some crushed fruit mixed with vinegar that they'll dip that unleavened uh, bread in. All of this has to be done and prepared and so his disciples are saying, Lord, where are we doing this? We need to get going. Now, notice the phrase at the end of verse 12, and prepare for you to eat the Passover. I think this is an interesting wording here. It seems that this, this says that Christ is the host of this. Now, every Passover would have a host. It's usually the head of the home, the father, uh, the male figure in that home would lead this Passover. And they're saying, Lord, where do you want to eat this Passover? Where are you gonna host this? And what are you going to, where are you gonna send us to do all this? Now normally a Passover feast was met with family. This was a big deal in Israel. You would meet with your family and, and there you would have that meal after dark. Beforehand it was done in haste but now it turned into more of a relaxing celebration. But notice these men are not going to their homes. They are not going to meet with their family. And what is amazing, they, they are going to meet with Jesus and this speaks of this truly close relationship they had with Jesus. There's some people that question the relationship of the disciples with Jesus, which is foolish. Jesus and these 12 were like a family themselves. They cared for one another. They were close-knit, and the portrayal of Jesus is gonna hit hard. This is one of their own. This is one of almost like the sons that rejects Christ. And so you can see the closeness. Look at verse 13 with me. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Well, Luke chapter 22, verse eight says those two disciples are Peter and John. They're part of that inner circle, right? Um, James is kept with him. He sends Peter and John. And you say, well, why, did, why does he always send Peter and John? Well, one, they were the ones who would prepare to teach uh, predominantly. We see their writings um, predominant along with Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But there's probably more reasons to this. Now you think about this, Judas is the treasurer. He's the one that keeps the money, the finances. He's the one who should have probably gone and set this up because there's purchase of a lot of things. There's money, transactions that are gonna have to take place to get this meal ready. But the Lord does not want Judas knowing where they're going, does he? And he keeps Judas in the dark because if Judas knew, it might have been a perfect time in a very quiet setting in this upper room where he could have brought the chief priest in and the police and arrested Jesus prematurely. And I think the Lord is hiding it from him. He keeps him in the dark so that this meal, this extremely important last Passover meal would take place without 
interruption. Notice also that Jesus is not in Jerusalem by the text. Most likely he's in Bethany. Um, He's charged Peter and John to go make these preparations. And so Peter and John probably leave Bethany. They work their way around the the side of Mount of Olives. They come inside the east gate. They come through the east gate. Um, And there they cross paths with this man carrying this this jug of water, right? This probably pot of water. Now normally that would have been um, a woman's job in that ancient day. It's not not demeaning that's just what they would have done that was where their role they wouldn't got water we see this through the scriptures um john chapter 4 the woman at the well so forth and, and it's interesting i think the lord does this and and orchestrates this because he would be easy to spot that's not a normal thing you would see happening and so here this supernatural foreknowledge of god controlling human actions um we see the lord jesus direct his disciples right to where he wants to go and you say well that's pretty fascinating well he's been doing this all along right earlier in the week what did he do hey go in there there's going to be a donkey and there's an unwritten colt untie the colt bring it to me if anybody asks you tell them the master has need of it they walk in there's a donkey there's a colt untie it, bring it, somebody says, what are you doing with the donkey? The master has use of it. Okay. He's already done this this week. He, he's showing his supernatural foreknowledge that he knows all things. Remember, he's fully God. And yet he's fully man. And remember, he, he doesn't seem to use the supernatural powers when it comes to his suffering. He just takes suffering on full. But when it comes to the fulfillment of the plan of God in other areas, he's fully God. And so it's remarkable that this thing happens just like it. Notice the verse says, follow him. <laughs> follow him. And this, this man would unknowingly guide the disciples through these narrow network of streets through old Jerusalem right to this providential upper room. Look at verse 14 with me. And whenever, uh, wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Well, most likely this man was some kind of servant probably. And he led Peter and John right to the owner of the house. Now you go, well, who's that guy? I mean, you know, is he just somebody that just God just supernaturally says, oh, yeah, great. I was going to use that, but you can have it. Uh, well, there's a lot of, lot of uh, speculation of who this is. I, I read some extensive thinking on who this might have been, but probably the one that strikes me the best that it possibly was, and again, these are my thoughts here, that it might be the father of John Mark's home. And you say, well, how do you get to that, Scott? Well, John Mark um, is the writer of the uh, letter that we're reading, right? The gospel recording. We're reading John Mark here. So that's, that's one thought. And it's possible John Mark was hanging around. These rooms were built on top of the flat tops of their houses and had open windows and the wind would blow through there. And they'd often have meals there because it was cool there as the evening cooled down and the sun went down and so forth and and so doubtless we could hear what was going on and it's possible John Mark was listening because John Mark of all people ends up in the garden doesn't he remember this and he's there and he follows them there and Jesus is praying and then all of a sudden the temple police and Judas come and and Judas portrays Jesus with a kiss and the Bible records we're going to see it in here where John Mark flees and he's just got a sheet around him like he you know it was late and he finally said well I'm going to see where they're going because they go late at night to this thing and it's possible it's possible and it's kind of fun to think about the relationship between Mark here now the language of the text makes it seem possible that Jesus was familiar with this owner of the home, and that's why I kind of go down that trail. But nevertheless, the disciples said 
teacher, say the teacher needs this room. Now that's an interesting term. That's a familiar term, the teacher. So it had to be someone who had been following his ministry. Notice the choice of terms he used. Where's my guest room for my disciples? Notice the personal pronouns that are there. These, these pronouns claim ownership and isolation, right? Um, where's mine? This is, it's not, it's not, don't take it in a selfish way like he was saying it that way. It's we're all looking at this last Passover meal. This is it. This is what I've come to do. This is what the Father has ordained me to do. I'm following his will. It's, it's a fascinating thought. And these are my disciples. He's marking them out. I don't want anybody else there but these men. And so you see something special about this meal. There's something about it. Something about this moment in time. Look at verse 15 with me. And he himself will show you a large room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Well, here the idea of prepare. The room was ready. This owner of the home had had this ready. God had moved in his heart in some way. It probably had a, a long table lowered to the ground with pillows where they would recline. The, the Passover meal now would take three to five hours as they would work their way through that meal. It was a real time of celebration and it was already prepared for them except for the meal. Now again, all this is being hidden from Judas because he would, he would have reported it. But, but please don't miss the incredible details of the sovereignty of our God. Our Lord knows exactly where they need to be and what's going to take place. Second thought this morning. The final lamb and the new covenant. The final lamb and a new covenant. This is an important thought here. Look at verse 16. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, this verse describes that uh, in a way that the disciples were like, well, he did it again. I don't know how he knew this, but here it is. And there's a, there's a sense of amazement and a wonder by these disciples as these events unfold. And notice it says that they prepare the Passover. Well, uh, Necessary preparations included a lot, right? And, and we already talked about going to the temple and the sacrifice of this lamb. Well, part of that meat, the kidney fat, and certain choice things would go to the temple, go to the priest, and then they would bring home the rest of that meat and they would roast it over fire and keep that, and that would be what they would eat. So that's quite a bit of process. If you've ever killed something in one day and then did all that, roasted it, and then ate it that day, you can imagine what takes place there. Not to mention all the other things they needed. Now, but some of you, there's some in this room, probably you good Bible students, you're, you're thinking, why is the Passover meal on this night? You, you might raise the question about the night of the Passover. Why is it on Thursday night? And, and you're, you're wrestling with this. And so the question is, how can Jesus be celebrating Passover on Thursday night when the Passover lambs are traditionally killed on Friday night? I hope you're thinking that, some of you. Well, there's some good answers to that, and they're very encouraging, as, you, as you'll hear this morning. First of all, it's very important to understand that Jesus needed to celebrate the Passover on Thursday night with his disciples. And here's one of the main reasons. Because during that final meal, he would transfer, transform the Passover meal to the new covenant. Now, now think about this. He is gonna take what they celebrated and he's going to transfer that from Passover to the Lord's table. This lamb that died and, and was, his blood was painted on your doorpost, 
now represents here in the Lord's table my blood. My body will be the bread. My blood will be the sacrifice for you so that death will pass over you. He's, he's now changing this, this nationalistic view of Passover to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in a new covenant. That's what he's doing on Thursday night. And he's got to do it before Friday night because he's going to be dead by Friday night. Now, think a little farther with me. Instead of representing these lambs as the sacrifice of, for Egypt, he is now saying this is the bread and cup. And this is what the apostles do from here on out. So we, next time we see them celebrating something like this is Pentecost. And Pentecost, you remember what Pentecost is? Pentecost is two to three weeks after Passover. And it was for all those who were unclean who couldn't take Passover. So Pentecost, where Peter preaches the sermon in Acts 2, you know this, right? Um, where he preaches that sermon is where all the Jews would come from, from all around and they would come there to celebrate Passover because maybe they were unclean. Maybe they had somebody die in their family or some, something went on or they touched an unclean person or an animal or something. So there's lots of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people that would come. But listen, never again did the apostles talk about the Passover. Passover now turns into the Lord's Supper. And you can study your scriptures. Walk through them. The Passover is now the Lord's table. That is the, the memorial that takes place. No longer is that remember. You say, well, is it wrong to remember the Passover of what God did in Egypt? Absolutely not. And, and a, a, Christian, um, a Christian Jew today can certainly celebrate that and remember God's gracious works. But the Lord makes it his table now. And that's so important. Because that's the gospel, Right? You can paint blood on the doorpost till, till, till the cows come home. I was going to say the lambs come home. Um, that's not going to save you. It is Christ. It is Christ in his blood, in his sacrifice, that saves people. And so Passover, now that view that held for, for years, for, for thousands of years, now turns from that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Such an important thing. It's also paramount to understand that the Lord had a great amount of promises and instructions to give to the disciples during this time. Look at John chapter 13 with me. Just, I'm just going to walk you through real quickly just some of the things. Mark does not record these. And in fact, most of the gospel recorders don't record it. John chooses to record a tremendous amount of instruction. Notice in chapter 13 of, of John, this is the Passover, all, all kind of what we've looked at already in Mark is taking place. Verse two is important, during the supper, so they're already there, the sun has gone down, they're partaking in the Passover meal. Notice what happens in verse two, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So right in the middle of that, we've already seen the devil working with the flesh of, of Judas, and he's preparing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the middle of all of that Passover meal, with Judas present, now get your mind around this for a moment, Jesus takes, out of, takes off his outer garment, gets that water that they had to probably get up there, and what does he do? He washes the feet of his disciples, including Judas. He's still there. And as you read the text, he later departs, and he leaves to go betray Jesus to the leaders. Verse 21, you start to see the prediction that that's going to happen. Um, we'll see that a little more in Mark. And then as you go, you can imagine what's happening here as you think about what's happening. Jesus is saying, 
for, the, for quite a many times, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered over to sin, uh, sinful men. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. And they finally start to say, whoa, this, is, this might be true. And they begin to mourn. In chapter 14, Jesus says, look, look, hold on. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If, if you believe in God, you believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he begins to comfort them. And then he goes beyond that. He starts to talk about his oneness with the Father. What the Father does, I do. And then he says, look, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to give you the Spirit of God. I'm going to leave my Spirit with you so you will not be alone. And he begins to teach about the role of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful lesson that is. And then things like the vine and the branch, right? He takes them through that great lesson. He talks about the relationship to each other. You love one another, they'll know who I am. And he begins to give great instruction to the disciples and to the church that we are to love one another and demonstrate our love to one another so that people may know that Jesus Christ exists. And then he talks about the relationship to the world. He says, look, the world hates you. They hated me, they're gonna hate you. But obey me, walk with me. And he goes on, warning after warning. He talks about his, his death. He returns to the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then from there they leave and they go up to the garden where Jesus begins to pray. So look, that meal on Thursday night was extremely important for Jesus to teach and to train his disciples. Now that's not all. Um, in the first century, Israel celebrated the Passover meal at night on two different nights. Now that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? You go, what? Maybe you didn't know that. If you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you try to figure out when this night is happening, it can be a little bit confusing. Because actually, the Passover meal was celebrated on two nights. If you were from Galilee or Capernaum or from the northern tribes, you celebrated it on what would be been this t- night, on Thursday night. That's when they celebrated. If you were from Jerusalem or Judea, those lower tribes, you celebrated it on Friday night. It has, there's so much study that goes in on this, but there was a lot of reasons why the, why the Pharisees and scribes would say, oh, does anything good come from Nazareth? There was always a, a separation between those tribes of people. But they celebrated it. Jesus and his family and the disciples' family, they celebrated it on Thursday night. And a lot of that goes back to the division of the na- nations under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now, there are some positives. Think about that. Say you're running the temple and, and all these lambs are coming through. That's pretty nice. You can run half of them through on Thursday night and then half of them through on Friday as well. So those things happen and alleviate some of the traffic there. But Jesus was able to eat this Passover with his disciples on Thursday. And then think about this. And die as the final lamb as those in Jerusalem were eating, had killed and sacrificed the final lamb. He dies at the same time. And he said, well, how do you know that? Well, a couple things. John chapter 18, verse 28. Jesus has been, he's been arrested Thursday night, midnight, somewhere in there. He's led to an illegal trial. We're going to see this. Um, in the courtyard and in the home of Caiaphas. From after that trial, and that's where they mock him and beat him, and Peter makes his way in, makes his denial, all that. We'll see that as we keep working our way through Mark. After that trial, at the crack of dawn early, they take Jesus and they take him to the praetorium. Now, John chapter 18, verse 28, tells us that, that the religious leaders could not go into the praetorium, which was a Gentile court, because they would be defiled and they couldn't eat the Passover lamb. See, they eat on Friday night. 
So they said, look, we can't go into this court. Pilate, you take him. And they, you know, he goes back and forth between Pilate and Herod. But they don't enter that because what do they want to do that night? Eat the Passover. So they know, so what I'm trying to show you is there's a Thursday night Passover, there's a Friday night Passover. One other passage, John 19, 14 says that Jesus' trial and crucifixion took place, and this is what the Bible says in John 19, 14, on the day of preparation for the Passover. So we know that he died as the final lamb. This is the last lamb that people would ever need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is most amazing about this is the absolute control of the providential events of, of God, right? Think about all the people that are, are, all the actors that are involved in this. You have disciples preparing this Passover meal. You have an owner of a home. You have a guy carrying a pot. You have a turncoat Judas in there waiting to find a time to betray him. You have godless religious leaders seeking to murder Jesus, not to mention Pilate and Herod and a host of soldiers and mockers and thieves and so forth. And God is orchestrating every event. Also, Jesus will get to the cross for you and me. See, that's fascinating to me. I mean, does that not tell you how much he loves you? That he works within this fallen world and paves the path of the Lord Jesus Christ so he'll get to the cross and Satan's doing everything he can to destroy that? See, that tells me he loves me. And he tells me he loves you. And, and we just amazed at that. The, the disciples picked up on this, right? And Dave Pentecost, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, 23, says, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. All those events took place. God planned that. It was all part of his foreknowledge. Brought him to that cross. And then the Bible says, but you put him to death by the hands of sinful men. Human responsibility. What an amazing statement. And they talk about this all the way through on um, the book of Acts, Acts 3.18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer and he would fulfill them. Acts chapter four, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, now listen to this phrase, to do what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Oh, I love that verse. There was no stopping our Savior to get to that cross. And though man threw every roadblock in the world, um, people tried to betray him, and Judas would have betrayed him earlier if he could have. But God had a plan to get him to the cross. And let me say this. I want to be very clear about this. You're going to hear more on this Wednesday. Jesus is not a victim. He is not a victim. And the social justice movement claims that Jesus is a victim just like them. And it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. This is not racial in any way. And what they've said is, is oh, we're just like Jesus. He was, a, he was a victim just like us. He is not a victim. This was the plan of God, and he executed it perfectly. And we have to understand that. We can't let society start dictating what the gospel looks like. As much as we love, love men and women of all race and we know that the gospel is the only answer for all of us, we don't make Jesus a victim. And when you study this text and you begin to realize that a man carrying a pot was part of God's plan, you see how intrinsic he was working out the details of Christ's death. He's not a victim. He's fulfilling the perfect plan of God so he can bring you and I into an eternal relationship with him. And brothers and sisters, we have to stand for that. We have the answer. That's the gospel. 
And this is why at his name every knee will bow because he's not a victim, he's a savior. That's why they'll bow. That's why they'll, they'll see his authority and his rule over all. They'll bow, he's not a victim. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all four gospels mention Jesus' announcement of the betrayal of Judas here at the meal. And it's astounding. Um, the Passover was celebrated at sundown and, and, and here all of a sudden this comes. Look at verse 17 with me. And when it was evening, he, he came with the disciples. Now, all of, everything's moving towards this upper room in this text. And the Bible says that, that it seems as though the, the disciples, probably Peter and John, when they've got everything ready, they go and get Jesus and they bring him to Jerusalem. Now, as I read this, I thought, Lord, this is your last time you're coming in during this lifetime. He's walking, think about, his, think about his knowledge that he knows what's gonna take place as he walks through that east gate, as he comes, or before that he comes around the Mount of Olives and, and he knows just in, in a matter of hours he's gonna be up there praying in the garden with his disciples. He knows Judas will come with the temple police and arrest him. He knows he's gonna go to Caiaphas' house and be beat and mocked. He knows what's coming. And he's walking in that. And, I mean, you, you and I couldn't handle that, could we? I would be going like Jonah, you know, Jonah, I'm getting on a boat and I'm leaving. <laughs> he's not, he's just coming and I thought about this, Lord you knew it, you knew what was gonna happen and you, you came and Peter and John came and they escorted you, they prepared everything and, and they brought you here and it's the last time you come in until you return again someday. And you set your feet back on this earth again. I thought that was sobering as I thought about it. But now let's turn our attention to Judas, point number three, and I want you to think about this, inner rebellion will always overcome outward conformity. Let me read that again. Inner rebellion will always overcome outward conformity. Look at verse 18 with me. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Well, the scene is clear. Can't you see it? It's, it's a relaxed atmosphere. Jesus is at the table. The 12 are there. They're partaking in the, the meal. Um, the Passover meal has no longer eaten in haste like it was in Exodus, but now has become a relaxing celebration. And all of a sudden, Jesus drops the bombshell in this thing, right? Truly. And when Jesus said truly, truly, everybody's going to wear like, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, there's one among you, and he's actually eating with me. He's going to betray me. See, everything was going so well. Judas doubtlessly believed no one knew. But clearly his hard heart had blinded him to this extraordinary Savior who, who orchestrates time. Can you imagine the silence in that room after that verse, right? I truly tell you this. Look at verse 19. You see their response. They began to be grieved and say to, one, say to him one by one, surely not I. This is the immediate response. Look at John 13. We're quick with me again. I want you to see the, a little bit of a fuller response here. John 13, 21. When Jesus has said that, he became troubled in spirit. He meaning Jesus. This is the reality of one he loved, one that walked with him, one he, he performed miracles in front of, one he entrusted with the funds. He becomes troubled in spirit 
and testified, saying, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another and at a lost to know which one he is speaking of. See how well hidden he is in there. He, he knows what to say. He knows what to wear. He, he knows the Sunday school answers, doesn't he? He's hidden well among these 12. And yet, he's about ready to sell Jesus out. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. Verse 24, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he speaks. And he leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom saying to to him, Lord, who is it? They they don't know who it is. This is a sweet scene. This This is men confident enough to kind of lean into each other because there's a deep love between them. Verse 26, and Jesus then answered that it is the one of whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Well, this begins to tell you that this is a very personal scene. As you turn back to Mark, you'll remember that it said in verse 18, truly I tell you that this is going to happen to you. And one of you, And then he does this qualifying phrase. He says, one who is eating with me. Now, um, I I think we can think that, well, it's, it's everybody in this room. But this one seems to be very, very close to him. Psalms 41, 9. It's probably depicting Ahipophel and David's relationship who Ahipophel bans him for his son, but certainly has marks that prophesies of Judas says this even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me see it highlights the enormity of the crime it it's it shows the horror of about what's going to take place these men walked together they slept out in the wilderness together they ate leftover bread together I mean these men did everything they saw the the deaf hear and the and the dumb speak and they I mean they have watched it all and you see the enormity of, of what's taking place. Look at verse 19 again. Again, they said they're grieved. They begin grieved. Look, the, the scene was full of joy. It's Passover meal. And all of a sudden, this, this statement Jesus makes is all of a sudden there's sorrow within the room. And they begin to try to figure out who it is. Notice they ask questions looking for, the, for a negative answer. Is it, it isn't me, is it? I mean, that's what they're going along. Even John and Peter are leaning back. It seems the disciples knew their own weaknesses. Uh, to me, it looks like, wow, they're capable. I think, I think in their hearts they realize, I'm, I'm capable. I, I've been around Christ. I know my sin. You spend time with him, you realize that I'm weak. And so they ask, would it, would it be me? Would I do such a terrible deed? Yet none of the 11 knew anything in of themselves that they could speak of. Look at verse 20. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. John says he dips and gives it to him. Well, this doesn't necessarily identify 
the trader because all of the disciples were dipping bread, right? That's part of the meal. You know, when you go to a nice Italian restaurant, they give you some olive oil and some uh, balsamic in there, and we tear bread apart, and we dip it in there. But if we have, a tra- you know, 13 at a table, how many dishes do they bring you? One? No, they set them apart. So what this tells me is Judas is very close to Jesus. Peter and John are here. Judas is right here. He's within arm length. He has made himself very close to the Savior, that's disturbing, isn't it? He was right there with them. See, Judas's love for the flesh could not be contained. He had trained with Jesus. He had seen Jesus' teaching. He was eyewitness of his miracles. And yet, when it came to his flesh, he could not stop it. And it wasn't a lot what he got, right? 30 pieces of silver, the average price of a slave in that time. Nothing enough, nothing to stop himself in the end of great sorrow, not of, of repentance, but just led to his death, his own suicide. See, this is a vivid illustration of what man is capable when his heart is not changed. Listen, brothers and sisters, we should fear our own hearts at times. And we should turn, not just stay in that fear, but you should turn to the Lord Jesus and say, God, if it was not for you, I can only imagine what I'm capable of. Have you ever talked to God that way? Have you ever been honest with God and say, if you had not saved me, have changed my life, what I would be capable of doing? Thank you, Lord Jesus. See, inner rebellion will always overcome outward conformity. You can dress like a Christian. You can talk like a Christian. You can attend like a Christian. But if your heart has not been transformed, your flesh will win in the end. And you'll do things you never imagined that you thought you would do. Fourth and final point. The foreknown plan of God in the sinfulness of man. The foreknown plan of God in the sinfulness of man. Look at verse 21 with me. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Again, Jesus is not a victim. Notice that first phrase. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written. I love that phrase. It's sorrowful and disturbing as this text is when we think of it from a humanity position, when we look at it from that, this is an amazing point. I'm going to do just as my Father and I planned before the foundations of the world. I am the suffering servant of Isaiah. I am the one who is pierced in Psalms 22. I am going to go the way it was written of me. What a statement. It doesn't relieve the guilt of Judas of what he did as a part of a murderous plot. But it tells us that Jesus voluntarily says, I am going to obey the Father's plan. Because all of our lives rested on it, didn't it? You know, as we get going, as we go further through this, I'm telling, I'm reading and studying going, I weep when I look at the text because I keep thinking he's doing this for me. 
I, I hope you have such a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as you read this and you go along with me as we study this together over the next weeks or months here and finish out Mark that you see him doing this for you. He's suffering for you. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that he was foreknown before the foundations of the world but has appeared in these last times for your sake. And the verse previous says because of the precious blood, blood of a lamb unblemished. See, he, he was fulfilling this. But then this last phrase, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Well, first, this marks a great contrast between Jesus and Judas, doesn't it? I'm the son of man. I am who Daniel 7 spoke about. I'm the one who fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament. You're the betrayer. It really contrasts them. And yet, and yet, think about this. You see both wrath and pity in God's statement, don't you? There is a woe here. That's the wrath. Pity. It would have been better if he was never born. You know, none of us should ever see a person die and go to hell and rejoice over that because God says he has no joy in the death of the wicked. See, we see our Savior here, in a sense, mourning over Judas. Mourning over a man who should have known better by human standard. And yet, nothing stops him. After all that, after that discussion, after seeing what Jesus does, as he washes his feet, this man still goes out. And that's because he was destined for this. He said, oh, that's hard, Scott. Well, that's not me saying. John chapter 17, in the middle of Jesus' prayer, he says this, verse 12, while I was with them, he's speaking to the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. Remember, he says, I keep all that you give to me, I lose none of them. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. And then this phrase, but the son of perdition, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. That's Judas. Son of perdition simply means the son of destruction. He fulfilled his calling, but it is not a, I uh, have to be careful with predest double predestinations and things like that. He lived out his flesh and the wages of sin was death. And I, you know, I love the gospel because though we understand that God has his elect, he knows who, to, who are his, he wouldn't be God if he doesn't know whose are his. And so that wipes out, the, the sinfulness of man wipes out free will and all of those things. And yet he left us with not the knowledge of who is saved and who isn't. And so we carry this tremendous message, right? Not the tremendous burden, we carry this tremendous message to the lost. Don't betray Jesus. Understand that he died for you. And yet we leave these things to a triune God who understands those who belong to them and those who don't. The Bible says that Judas became the instrument of Satan. John 13, 27 says, we read this after that morsel, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said this. Jesus said to him, what you do, you remember this phrase? Do quickly. That's chilling, isn't it? What you do, go do it. I mean, he, he in a sense, just wrote his death sentence right there. 
go get the police, go come and meet me in the garden, kiss me on the cheek, and turn me over to these godless men. It's astounding. This statement, it would have been better if he was not ever born. In other words, the non-existence would be preferable compared to the fate of one who denies Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a sin which utterly negates any good existence of humanity. I'm not talking about goodness in man, but goodness of humanity. Mark, Luke, and John don't give Judas's name here, but Matthew does. And the Bible says, and Judas, who had been betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. To the last moment, I want you to think about this, to the last moment, he lies. He knows it's him. He's already, Satan has already put the, the seed of deception in his heart. He knows it's him and he deceives all the way to the end. And of course, John's gospel records that Judas leaves the room and he leaves in such a way that it seems like the disciples don't even know he's gone. Listen, we gotta close this, but there's no other answer for us but the gospel. There, there's no answer for us humans but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you don't look at Judas and go, oh, that dirty rat. I hope you learn to look at that and say, there go I if it wasn't for my Savior. We're capable of dastardly things, aren't we? Even as saved people. This is why there's church discipline in churches because there's wicked sin. This is why people love one another to confront sin because it destroys and breaks and hurts things. There's sin and we must deal with that. And so look, the gospel is our only hope. So what do we do? We repent. That's how he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us enough faith. He gave us faith in our lives so we would go, oh God, that's me. I'm the wicked one like the thief on the cross. He's done nothing. I deserve what I should get. I need your help, Jesus. That's how people get saved. And Christians do very similar things. We go, thank you for dying for me. I know my sin. I am sorry, Jesus. I know that sin put you on the cross. Please forgive me. I repent of that. And so we, even as Christians, repent of things. And look, pray for those. Pray for those who maybe have, and it's hard for us to know, and you have to be careful here, and, and be careful of judgment here, but pray for those who have a head knowledge of God. Pray for those who went to Sunday school. Pray for those who grew up in Riverbend and a myriad of other churches, and in the end walk away and live their life with their flesh. Pray for them. Beg God to, to rescue them. It's their only hope. And for us, brothers and sisters, Strive to love Christ with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. Look, that's a lifetime. There's no one in this room. I think the oldest believers would stand up right now if I'd let you. You would say, I'm still working on it. By God's grace. By God's grace. Keep running after Jesus. Father, these passages as we move closer to your son's death are quite moving all of scripture is your truth and all of it is sufficient and perfect and without error. 
But those of us saved by grace and by your son's sacrificial, substitutionary, perfect death, Lord, this is moving to us. We know what he's doing and we know why he's doing it. So it it grabs us, Lord, it moves us. And we can't help but think about how our own lives can be reflected in both disciples and the betrayer, Judas. And we realize, Lord, that sin loves to take root and, and our flesh is warring against the spirit, Lord. And there's a battle going on in there, Lord. And I pray for us as those other Christians in here that we would, oh, Lord, feed the spirit of God, the word of God, and, and meditate on Christ and all those things that helps us defeat sin by your grace. But at the same time, Lord, there could be and quite possible people who know all of the stories who have read and heard what Jesus has done and yet in the end walk away from him so Lord I pray Lord that today you would use this message to draw people to yourself and you would cause us to love you deeper to know you more for your glory I pray this in Jesus name Amen